You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. On today's episode, we're going to be welcoming in another one of our state partners, our state waterfowl biologist. Uh, This one is from the state of Texas. He's a good friend of mine. I worked with him quite often whenever I was down on the Gulf Coast uh, stationed in in Lafayette. So uh, we're going to welcome in Kevin Cry, the waterfowl program leader for Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. And we're going to talk with Kevin about the results from their recent midwinter waterfowl survey. And so, Kevin, thanks for taking the time to join the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's my pleasure to join you guys and uh, looking forward to having the conversation. It's good to catch up with you just from a personal level. You and I worked together quite often whenever uh, I was down in Lafayette. But since since taking this new job about a year year or so ago, I, I don't know that we've run across one another's paths. So it's it's good to hear your voice and good to catch up with you on, on uh, waterfowl issues again. Absolutely, absolutely. We've had other state waterfowl biologists come in and, and talk with us about the, the surveys that they've conducted in, in uh, autumn and, and winter, and, and there is variation across those states and how they're conducted and when they're conducted. States like uh, Illinois and Missouri, uh, Mississippi and Louisiana actually conduct some surveys multiple times throughout that fall and winter period, but uh, there are other states that only conduct surveys at one time during the winter, and that's the, the midwinter survey period, which is uh, early, early to mid-January as, the, uh, as weather permits. And so Texas is one of those states. You conduct a survey only one time, and you know, a lot of these decisions are made because of resource, um, just resource availability. Texas is a huge state, as we will talk about, and it's very neat from that perspective because there are so many different uh, eco-regions that you actually encompass. So the prospect of conducting multiple surveys over such a large geography probably is, is pretty daunting. So I just want to provide that context that the, the surveys you conduct are, are only once during that uh, during the uh, fall and winter period, and it's at the midwinter. So uh, let's start out, Kevin, with you, uh, the same as we've done with other other state waterfowl biologists. Give our listeners an overview of uh, of the survey. Uh, you can talk as much about the historical perspective as you want to, but just give people somewhat of a, a of a feel for the the survey that you conduct. Uh, yeah, yeah. As you mentioned, it's um, uh, I'm, I'm honored and privileged to work in such an amazingly diverse state. Uh, you know, the, the size of it's one thing, but the diversity from east to west and north to south is is unprecedented anywhere in North America. And naturally, uh, that gives you challenges in regards to uh, survey methodology um, and, um, like you said, resources, time, funds. And so uh, it's a Hercule- Herculean effort uh, for us as a staff uh, to even pull off this one survey on an annual basis. Um, with all the challenges that are associated with flying that with the size of the state that we fly. So 
Um, you know, historically, uh, this survey, um, you know, dates back. It's one of the oldest surveys in North America uh, for wildlife, and it, it and it, uh, you know, basically we are biologists. Uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, we'd get in airplanes and go fly. You know, things like refuges, rivers, um, reservoirs. Uh, a technique that we call cruise survey. So you go out there on the landscape and you technically try and count every duck and goose you see. Um, and some uh, um, very smart biologists about 20, 30 years ago um, were noticing that they were going out and spending all day in an airplane, uh, counting reservoirs, flying shorelines, and then landing the airplane and going and sitting next to one roost uh, and seeing uh, five and six times the amount of ducks they saw all day. And so we got to thinking um, a little bit more, you know, big picture about the entire state. Um, you know, when you think about the state of Texas, and especially with, uh, you know, North American Waterfowl Management Plan, we've had three priority areas in the state of Texas since, you know, largely the inception of the plan. And, and those areas are the High Plains, Playas, um, East Texas, bottomland, hardwoods, and, 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 and whatnot. And then obviously the uh, very important um, Gulf Coast of, of Texas, the rice prairies, coastal marsh, and bay systems. Um, and so that's really where we did all of our, concentrated our efforts. Um, but we got to paying attention that, you know, over time, um, landscapes are changing dramatically. And, and we got to notice in inland that there was a surprising amount of surface water um, showing up on the landscape in the form of reservoirs or small ponds that we call stock ponds. And uh, so we started kind of realizing that we were really missing the boat here. And so we redesigned our entire survey about 25 years ago, uh, basically taking a very detailed scientific look, at, you know, using randomization and, and scientific, uh, statistical rigor to lay out a sampling frame um, across the state and not only that, we were able to create uh, what we call stratification uh, or using those ecoregions, uh, those similar type vegetation and soil types um, to basically break apart our state. And so instead of just being able to get a statewide estimate of you know, how many ducks and geese do we think are out there, uh, we're able to get estimates um, you know, of these individual areas. Uh, and those areas, uh, just for reference, unfortunately, this is very visual, but uh, those areas uh, for reference are, uh, we have what we call the high plains, which is the Playa Wetland country in the panhandle, um, going south and east into what we call the rolling plains, and then heading further east into what we call the oak woods and blackland prairie, and then all the way uh, east along uh, the Louisiana border, we have what we call the piney woods. Then going south, we have the Gulf Coast prairies and marshes, and then a little bit further west, we have what we call the brush country. And then we have a real tiny little piece in the far, far southwest Texas, uh, known as the Sand Plain. So we're able to get, uh, you know, fairly um, statistically rigorous estimates for each one of those those regions. And obviously, we can summarize that into a statewide estimate. I guess I want to add some some geography to the to each of these regions to help paint that picture a bit better because you're right it is we're on a we're, we're just on a on a podcast here and people can't see what we're looking at but I've printed out some documents here and maybe we can attach some names of cities to these areas so when we look at the high plains up there in the panhandle 
we're talking about Amarillo and Lubbock. Those are the two of the cities that folks may have may have heard about. And so then, uh, w- <laughs> I was looking at the map because I've not spent much time in the Rolling Plains, and I was I was challenged to find a city in the Rolling Plains that most folks would know. So what <laughs> what are we looking at there? Uh, so the Rolling Plains would probably be best defined as uh, like Abilene, Wichita Falls, uh, okay. over to San Angelo, um, and then it, it stretches uh, eastward. Uh, to just the, um, the west side of Dallas-Fort Worth. So when we roll into the Oaks and Prairies, you're talking, uh, you know, the north end is Dallas and Fort Worth, and the south end is Austin. Uh, and then the Piney Woods, you're talking, you know, Lufkin, Nacogdoches, you know, deep east Texas. Um, and then obviously Gulf Coast, it's Houston all the way to uh, Corpus Christi, pretty much. Um, and then the Brush Country is a kind of unique area. It's, you know, San Antonio, uh, over to Laredo and south down to Brownsville. Yeah, and you also have an area, the uh, sort of central, w- west central Texas. Is that the Trans-Pecos? Do I remember that correctly? And you don't conduct surveys there? No, it's it's a combination of um, Trans-Pecos and uh, what we call our hill country. Um, we have done, we do not conduct surveys there, but uh, back when we redesigned this survey, uh, we did some experimental surveys out there and the reality is the water bodies were just so few and far between. It wasn't worth our, our, our effort. Uh, it would take, uh, you know, doing the statistics right, it would take sampling probably at a rate higher, much higher than we do anywhere else. Uh, we could spend as much time out there just trying to find water bodies. But the reality is um, where there is water in that landscape and people that, that, that live or hunt or been in that landscape realize that where there is water, there are ducks. So, you know, the, the, the Rio Grande River, the Pecos River, uh, many of the springs in that landscape, and then all the, the small farm ponds and stock ponds that are associated with with the hill country, when they're holding water, there's ducks there. Um, and so it's just one of those things that, um, you know, we, we can only survey so much with, with what the techniques and, and materials we have. So, uh, yeah, that area is definitely uh, left out of the survey. Yeah, I apologize for interrupting you yet interrupting you there, but I, I thought it would be helpful to attach some elements of geography to each of those regions for our listeners. So carry on with, with uh, where, we were, where, where you were there. Okay. Yeah. So like I said, we, we were able to get those, those estimates by uh, ecoregion. And, and then, you know, this is um, you know, 1997. And so when we, re- we redesigned this survey, we had a lot of criticism because, you know, uh, in our business, we're always talking about long-term trends and, you know, being able to compare data back to to those type of um, long-term databases. And, and we just realized that, you know, getting the wrong answer was, was so much more important or getting the wrong answer uh, for, for many years by not doing a proper survey was, uh, it was much more important to get a, a right answer. And so we realized that we were going to be resetting. Um, so with this technique, it's very difficult to go back historically um, uh, to compare to, you know, like the sixties and seventies and fifties and things like that which there were some efforts surveying back then, but um, it was just more important to get the, a better answer. You're right, Kevin. It's We've heard that same message with some of our other state waterfowl biologists where they recognize that they have this long-term data set, and we're talking about uh, Arkansas or Mississippi, they have this long-term data set of these cruise surveys or whatever the case may have been for their particular survey design, but it wasn't delivering the quality of information that they really, really needed to inform their understanding of the changes that were occurring. There's so much bias that could be occurring just because the survey method wasn't great. And so it just takes some leadership to say, hey, it's better 
to uh, to sort of so to speak cut bait right now and start over and start collecting more reliable information. And so that's what you guys did. That's what the other states did. And that's we've also we we also did that with the uh, the model duck breeding population survey, which someday I'm sure we'll we'll talk about. And before you know it. You think, oh my gosh, we're losing all this historical data. But before you know it, 10 or 15 years have gone by and you're beginning to build this data set so that you can look at these trends. So uh, that's a very similar message and very, very similar observation decision that others have made. Right. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Like I said, 1997, we're working on 24 years of, of trends now. And so you can really, really begin to paint a picture. And I like to talk about it as a picture or a story because that's really what it is. When you start looking at this 24 years of data that we're collecting, um, fully understanding um, the realization that this is a one-time snapshot in time. We're doing this at that time of year because that's when the other states are doing it. Um, you know, we, there's lots of ways if you were just to do a sample, uh, a survey for the state of Texas, it'd probably be done a little bit differently, different timing probably. Uh, this is certainly not um, what we would say peak uh, abundance for some areas, but this is when the survey was designed. This is not just a Texas survey. This is a whole central flyway wide. Uh, historically, it was a national survey, so all the states were doing it at one point. So um, to be honest with you, we're, we're quite proud of this survey. We were kind of um, leading the way with uh, taking that step and going to a more scientifically rigorous survey, uh, looking at the entire landscape. And uh, we were, uh, yeah, we're, we're quite proud of what we've, we've been able to do. And it's it's really been uh, a great communication source for us, for our constituents, for uh, assisting us in, in in our discussions with setting regulations. Um, for you know, when you're hearing about these these large scale conversations, which I know we're all uh, you know on bated breath here, wanting to have these conversations about where are the ducks, uh, we're able to really paint an interesting story. Um, uh, when you start looking at what we're seeing within our boundaries and then what people are seeing outside the, the boundaries of the state of Texas. And it's, uh, it's it's really, really interesting, and we're quite proud of it. And Texas, the state of Texas, gives us a really unique opportunity to do that because it's one organization that's responsible for these surveys across all these different ecoregions, across a vast area, as we've referenced a couple of times. And so that's uh, it's just very unique in that regard. You can look at the state of Texas on a map as I was doing this morning and kind of visually moving it over to the east. And the area that you survey, although you don't cover that uh, west central Texas portion, the areas that you do survey uh, equate uh, area-wise to about the same as you know the entire states of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Arkansas. And so we have one organization in collecting these data uh, using uh, not necessarily the exact same protocols within each of those regions. There's, I think, one key difference among one of your, your survey areas. But nevertheless, you're the curator of all that information, and it's a consistent data set, and it does allow you to look at some really interesting trends. One question or a couple of questions I have re with respect to the level of effort involved in this survey Talk a bit about the number of staff required to complete this, the number of days that it normally takes to complete this. Um, and then I think this year was was you had pretty favorable weather conditions. I think I noted in your email that this was one of the first times maybe ever or certainly in recent memory that you were able to complete the survey and get the results summarized before the end of the duck season. So yeah, um, again, even with the effort, it's, it's evolved over time. You know, we've become more efficient. Um, for a lot of different reasons, uh, just because you're kind of forced to in our world, but um, the, the financial aspect, but also for scientific data quality. Um, 
historically, we would have anywhere from 10 to 12 different observers and up to four different aircraft going any given day, uh, flying across the state, uh, you know, obviously weather permitted. And uh, over time, we were been able to just kind of work it out better. We're down to three aircraft um, and we're down to, uh, let's see here, two, four, I think I think a total of eight observers, um, and, and and we're able to be more consistent, keep those observers in the aircraft longer. Uh, back in the day, we would kind of rotate observers out as they kind of moved around, especially going down south in the coast. And uh, we just for, for reasons, especially you know, some rigor of data and consistency, we've we've been keeping those observers in those areas. So um, yeah, it's uh, like I said, three airplanes, uh, eight observers. Um, any given year, this year it took us uh, just shy of two weeks uh, to complete. Um, some years we've been still in the air, uh, coming up, you know, even even as late as late January. Uh, you know, just weather windows didn't cooperate and things like that. So uh, this this was a unique year uh, in, in the way at which um, we were able to to get it done. Uh, you know, with less observers, you know, we were able to get data. You know, once they're on the ground, summarize that data, uh, deliver it to, uh, you know, in the proper uh, spreadsheets and, and, and get that data analyzed. And, and uh, like I said, you become very efficient uh, after 24 years of doing this. And we essentially, yeah, we're able to kind of put out results, uh, you know, prior to the last weekend of duck season, which was, like I said, at least in my career, which is now coming up on 22 years, um, that's the, the first time that we've ever been able to do that. There's many years where we're in late February uh, and still don't have, uh, you know, these summaries available. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real Hercules effort, but, uh, you know, over time we're getting better at it for sure. We're recording this, uh, this podcast on January 29th, so just two days prior to the end of the 2019-2020 duck season. I think you, uh, think you released these maybe, results. Maybe last- for y'all. Well, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Maybe we'll, what what does uh, how long does the season close last Sunday? Yeah. Oh, across the entire state. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah, we have a uh, yeah, we 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 definitely uh, uh have uh wanted to maintain the the uh the availability of weekends. Okay. Um, to to our hunters and and we we want to open on a Saturday, close on a Sunday. Uh, and that's kind of been a Parks and Wildlife slash Parks and Wildlife Commission policy. Uh, for a long time it's you know with the framework extension going to january 31st uh, you know it's it was quite a few days this year but it's something we don't have to worry about next year considering january 31st is a sunday okay all right so, yeah yeah so our, our, our duck season closed last sunday okay i guess i missed that nuance and i forgot that some states are choosing not to end on the 31st some over here are, are closing on the 31st and i don't have all those straight in my mind of exactly who is and who is not but uh, nevertheless we're um by the time this podcast gets out I think all the duck seasons will be closed. We'll be past the framework extension most likely. But, uh, yeah, so you were able to get this out just before the end of the of, of your season. Uh, one uh, one other thing that I wanted to uh, uh, clarify, I believe you started to reference this, and I might have interrupted you, um, but and, and then we'll get on to the results. I know there's one of those one of those topics where people are like, okay, enough of all this uh, groundwork and background and history. Uh, you know, let's let's talk about the numbers. Um, 
Your survey designs across all of these regions except for one are transect-based. And we've talked about transect-based surveys with Larry Reynolds and Luke Naylor and Houston Havens where you you have a fixed set of transects and you survey on each side of the plane. You count birds on each side of the plane a certain distance away and then you extrapolate based on uh, an appropriate expansion fact, uh, factor. And you would do that for each of these ecoregions. But the but the high plains, if I remember correctly, is a bit different in how that methodology is conducted. Is that right? Yes, yes, sir. It's um, so that for those that aren't familiar with what ply lakes or ply wetlands, excuse me, are they're they're uh, very very dynamic natural uh, uh, wetland basins that dot the high plains. Um, very very historic and important to waterfowl, especially during migration um, for you know eons and. So that landscape really just doesn't lend itself. So when you're designing a survey, you're not you're not designing it uh, really to count ducks. You're designing it to cover a certain percentage of the available habitats that are out there on the landscape. And so we had to rethink uh, you know a method up there. You can fly straight lines up there all day long and and miss all the water. Um, you know, obviously, even if it's wet, uh, but that landscape in itself, and I'm sure we'll get into this in a minute. Um, is very, very dynamic. Uh, it's 100% rainfall dependent. It's like 15-inch annual rainfall area. So it needs extreme rain events to even pond water in these basins. And so any given year, uh, the vast majority, you know, a good year up there, we're talking 6 7% of the basins are holding water during winter. Um, and there's something like 20-something thousand basins up there. So, um, so, you know, when you're just flying, if you fly in a straight line, only looking out, you know, uh, a couple hundred yards outside the plane and within your transect, um, you're just, you know, not likely to cover, uh, you know, the, the habitat appropriately. So we designed a survey up there uh, such that where we would randomly select basins, obviously you and, you know, GIS and soil data. Um, and then we would, we annually fly to each one of those basins and obviously determine uh, wet, dry, frozen, um, and or and, and if they're 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 wet and not frozen, you know, obviously we'll start uh, enumerating, speciating the fowl that are on there. So it, it's quite a bit different than what we do the rest of the state, uh, but it's been uh, quite successful, to be honest with you, and it, it really works out well uh, compared to what we've been doing up there in the past. I want to add some some data here to the conversation to demonstrate just how dynamic the uh, the bird numbers are in that in the high plains region i'm looking at one of your one of the files that that you've shared over the years the you sh usually share a couple of files one just shows the results from one year and then the other will show the the numbers back through time and when i look at the total dabbler estimates for the high plains over the period 97 through 2018 the high number for all dabblers is 1.4 million and then 2 years prior it looks like the number was less than 100,000 so we go from 1.4 million or from less than 100,000 to 1.4 million. I mean, you want to talk about a dynamic landscape. I don't know that there's any landscape more dynamic in terms of wetland conditions and waterfowl abundance during the non-breeding season than the high plains. It's truly remarkable. Yeah, it really is. One of my best examples is, is you know, even if it's wet, right, even if there's a, a pretty high percentage of the basin holding water, which this year it was probably approaching 40 percent, which is abnormally wet. And as you see in the data, and we'll talk about in a minute, um, obviously the birds found it and, and were there this winter. Um, but even if it is wet, um, and we go out there and find a lot of wet basins and there's birds on these playas, um, any given day, the first week, you know, in the early part of January, you know, it could be four degrees outside. 
so the high plains is really literally right along that freeze line. They're constantly dealing with freeze thaw events, which has huge impacts to duck movements uh, in that landscape. The geese just go inside the city limits and, and you know, kind of tough out the cold weather. Um, they're really adaptable, but the ducks got to leave. And so uh, two years ago, we were flying a survey. It was wet. Uh, we counted, I can't remember, a little over a million birds is what was indicated. The day we ended, the next day, the high temperature was 10. And we, if we would have flown that survey starting that day, uh, we would have counted zero. And so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a real hit and miss up there. And so, if, yeah, if you look at some of those graphs in the high plains, it's just up and down, up and down, spikes and valleys. And it's just, you know, uh, whether or not it rains and whether or not it's cold. Uh, but when it rains and it's not cold, um, it is a uh, kind of a magical place, to say the least. Let's get into the numbers a bit here. I want to. What I'll start by doing is just uh, open the floor for you to talk about some of the some of the highlights. I'm sure people have already asked you about this, and you've probably developed some talking points. So I will just turn it over to you, and then I'll I'll chime in with a few questions to follow up on. What were the What were some of the more impressive and notable results this uh, from this January? It was really a uh, you know again going back to the story about how vast and, and and different this state is from one end to the other. It was really just the tale of where you were, and um, and then obviously some of the species that we encountered really uh, drove these numbers this year. And so overall, um, you know, the good news is it was I believe our third highest uh, midwinter estimate uh, for ducks in the last 24 years. So as a state a very, very large, giant state, we had a lot of ducks within our boundary this year, a whole lot. And uh, we kind of knew that going in. Conditions were good uh, throughout the state. Uh, and matter of fact, we, I believe, had, let me look at it here, um, about a 17% increase from the previous year. Um, and that's a, the overall statewide total duck estimate was 4.5 million inside the boundary of the state of Texas. Um, and so when you start thinking about that, you got to start breaking it down by ecoregion. And, um, you know, the, the Gulf Coast of Texas historically um, is, you know, as we all know, one of the most important wintering waterfowl areas in all of North America. And it's always been our, our number one player in the state. Uh, and there, there have been years in the last couple decades or last decade for sure where that wasn't the case. There were other areas within the state further inland that were actually harboring more ducks than our Gulf Coast. Um, and so um, the good news this year is the Gulf Coast was uh, by far our, our leading uh, duck area for the state at 1.7 million. Um, but the, kind of the, the bad news there is that's all almost completely driven by one species, uh, and that being redheads. And so um, a little over half of that 1.7 million uh, was redheads uh, that we detected on the survey. Um, the bad news uh, for the Gulf Coast um, is is pretty much other than redheads, or at least other than divers, pretty much every single species of waterfowl is declining over this 24-year period, um, especially dabbling ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.
I'm looking at this file here, and the one thing that is just shocking to me, I knew the number was low for this species on the coast, sort of traditionally, but this is remarkable. This indicates, this says here that you saw zero mallards in the coastal zone. Now, that doesn't mean there are zero mallards in the coastal zone. That just means that you counted, your staff counted zero mallards along the transects that they flew, and therefore you extrapolate zero and you get zero. But nevertheless, that is an index of the low abundance of mallards there. And, and yeah, as you talk about the trend over time, that's certainly going we'll, to, will certainly bear out also. Yeah, some, some species, you know, the, the low abundant species, uh, you know, it's all about detectability, right? They're going 100 miles an hour, 100 feet in the air. Um, you know, we're just human. And the reality is detectability is an issue, especially as you get uh, lower and lower in population. So uh, we are just sampling the landscape. We're just sampling a very small portion of what's out there. And for the Gulf Coast, we lay out transects according to uh, availability of that habitat type. We have a very crude six or seven habitat types that we mapped out. And we lay transects over those habitat types such that we cover 1% of those available habitats. And so, yeah, it, it's very easy uh, to uh, miss. You know, we're talking about a 300-yard a wide transect. Uh, it's very easy to miss some of these things. Um, and so some of it you just got to take it with a grain of salt. Yes, we know there are mallards on the coast. The other thing about the midwinter survey is, like I said earlier, it's a snapshot in time. We're fully aware that ducks are coming and going. Um, we very well could have missed peak migrations, those things, but that's the design of the survey. I mean, one thing that we can control is time. And so that's what we stay consistently with. Um, if we were to go out there and, and try and you know, hit a number, uh, peak migration, those type of things, you, you now have really diminished the quality of your data in your survey. So the one thing we control on an annual basis is time. And so that's what we control. And, and Mallory is a really interesting story because when you look at the whole big picture of the state of Texas, and obviously, this is a very serious topic of conversation going on across the U.S. right now. Uh, there's really only a couple of species of waterfowl that are declining in the state of Texas. Uh, and mallard is one of those. Mallard is absolutely, uh, our trends are that statewide, uh, we are seeing a decline in mallards coming to Texas. Uh, and then the other is Arctic geese, so snow geese and, and, and white-fronted geese. Other than that... Uh, for the most part, ducks coming to Texas have been on a constant increase over 24 years. It's an it's a increasing trend. And the percentage, this is kind of important, the percentage of the central flyway ducks. Now, all the states in the central flyway fly the same week. So we're getting a good uh, idea of distribution that first week of January. So the percentage of central flyway ducks being counted inside the state of Texas is also uh, on an increasing trend and has been for 24 years. So when you hear this idea about uh, large-scale, dare I say the word, short-stopping, um, the only evidence we have of that happening in the state of Texas is with mallards and snow geese and white-fronted geese. Uh, all other species are still making it to our borders and making it into the state. But the, the, the big story there is where are they within our state? Let's shift a bit and talk about some of the other regions. This the the larger issue that you were just mentioning, you know, the trends over time. I want us to I think what probably what we'll do is we'll start a new episode and discuss that in in more detail because I have a lot of have a lot of questions and comments there as well. So that's certainly as you mentioned a hot topic and want to want to make sure we give due due time to all that as well as 
uh, some of the other notable results here. You were talking about the redheads here. We'll stay in the coastal zone here, and, and I want to touch on the redhead numbers you you, you noted. Uh, nearly 800,000 redheads estimated uh, in coastal Texas, and that's pretty interesting to me because as we've talked about with some other people, uh, species that congregate, uh, that 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 flock to a high degree, whether they be geese or redheads in this case, are notoriously difficult to survey with a high degree of precision, to estimate with a high degree of precision, just because of that clumping nature. And so, for example, I can look back through time on some of your results, and there are some years where your redhead numbers, even I think two years ago, estimates of redheads on the coastal zone were like 44,000, 43,000. Well, we all know there's way more than 43,000 redheads on the coastal zone te- in the in coastal Texas. But uh, have y'all y'all haven't changed the layout of your survey at all, have you? This is just an uh, two consecutive years where your transect has been in an area that that uh, overlapped with where there was a large flock of redheads, right? Yeah, so yeah, that that's absolutely one of the uh potential criticisms of this this methodology. Um you, you don't with clump species, exactly as you just said, uh, diving ducks and, and in most cases, most geese, uh, they, they clump up. This, this type of methodology kind of starts to fall apart. And so the reality is that's just something that you, you have to understand when looking at these trend data. Is it's very, very easy um, to fly a quarter of a mile away from a huge redhead raft, just as easy as it for that transect or to go right over the top of them. And so um, the one thing I can say is the year that we had three years ago, we had such a low number of redheads. Um, that was also uh, seen by hunters. Um, there was very, very few, for whatever reason, very unexplicably, um, there was very, very few redheads on the Texas coast. And it was um, you know, a very alarming trend for our hunters. And so that kind of reflected it. So albeit the final number might not be exactly what's there, it did uh, get a good... Uh, view of what was actually happening on the landscape that year. And then obviously followed up by the last two years. Um, one of the things that's going on with redheads down here is, and really this will be part of the long conversation we have here, is that uh, overall waterfowl, ducks, geese, you name it, are becoming noticeably, and this is not just in observations by hunters and biologists in, in our surveys, but we're talking like research, you know, seeing that these things, these birds are doing telemetry, some of this uh, distribution stuff. They are just noticeably getting less and less tolerant of human disturbance. And so these redheads um, are getting even more clumped than they historically were. They're, they're, they're going places during daylight hours, uh, away from where hunters are, away from airboats, away from disturbance. And so it's even making it a little bit more difficult for us to get our transects over them. And so obviously the last two years, with a very high numbers of redheads, uh, you know, we had transects that went over large concentrations of redheads. But with that also being said, redhead numbers are up on a continental scale. So this isn't the only data stream that's showing increases in numbers. And then we've always known historically, um, take a number, it's always been out there, but you know, the vast majority, somewhere around 90% of the redheads in North America uh, go to uh, historically Texas, and Laguna Madre and Texas and Mexico. And, and so when you look at the overall number compared to those, um, you know, it kind of makes uh, kind of makes sense. Those are two different data streams that are kind of lining up. So, um, yeah, the reality is there's a lot of redheads down here this year. 
was it exactly eight hundred thousand? We don't know, but it was uh, it was a, it was a good year for redheads for sure. Kevin, I want to shift a bit here and talk about uh, maybe some of the individual species that were that were particularly up from last year. And I'm looking here at this data file, and we'll just explore some of these numbers. Mallard numbers statewide were up about a hundred percent from last year. Uh, pintail numbers were up about it looks like about one hundred and seventy percent from last year, and it looks like. That was driven by what you saw on the high plains, uh, that area, the, the playas that you as you uh, referenced there, and so that's uh, th- that's one of the things that you probably expect when conditions are good in the high plains for those two species to take advantage of that. Yeah, yeah. Historically, you know, the high plains with their playa wetlands and the abundant uh, food on the landscape, uh, i.e., corn, milo, things like that, have always been a very traditional mallard area. Um, uh, but for the most part, because of the dynamics of that landscape, especially in January, uh, our, our leading mallard ecoregion has uh, pretty much always been, except for a couple of years, always been the Oaks and Prairies, uh, that area of Dallas South, Red River South, you know. And, uh, and this is one of the areas where we're really kind of concerned watching because those mallard numbers are on a pretty steady decline in that Oaks and Prairies region. Uh, but the good news this year is it was, like I said earlier, it was very wet. Um, abundant uh, wetland basins holding water in the in the high plains, and uh, and yeah, so that number of you know the statewide mallard estimate being up from the previous year was 100% driven by by the the, the Playa Lakes region. Um, I believe we we estimated uh, about 350,000 mallards in the playas, uh, and then probably more interestingly, um, you know, our pintail estimate, statewide pintail estimate, went up you know like 171%. Uh, but that was, again, uh, about half a million of the statewide estimate of, you know, the statewide estimate of pintails was 825,000, um, but a half a million of those were in the playas. And so, uh, yeah, this is just one of those years. Uh, this would have been an entirely different story that we'd be talking about right now if it was, you know, 15 degrees out. Um, and those, those birds would have redistributed uh, somewhere, uh, probably off the Caprock and the Rolling Plains and Oaks and Prairies, and we probably would have picked them up there. But uh, for sure, the, the high plains really drove a lot of the statewide numbers this year, um, and especially things like pintails and mallards. So, um, yeah, it was an interesting survey. I'm looking also here, the number one species was gadwall. I say number one, you, the largest estimate was for gadwall uh, statewide, and that species is... It was distributed somewhat equally across a number of your your eco regions. Uh, the one that the one area that does kind of surprise me here about three hundred thousand of those were in the South Texas brush country. Did that did that surprise you when you saw that number? No, well, no. Uh, the brush country is another really unique little area. Um, this is kind of a new area for waterfowl. It's largely driven uh, very much like the oaks and prairies and rolling plains by small man-made. Uh, uh, reservoirs, ponds, stock ponds, um, and the reality is that landscape, um, when it gets wet, is very desirable to ducks, and it kind of likens itself back to this conversation about human disturbance. Uh, you have a vast, vast landscape out there uh, where people are huge ranches, where people are, you know, primarily using that for cattle and deer hunting. You know, it's bobwhites and whitetails that drive that landscape, and and these ducks, uh, you know, are steadily you can see increasing trends in a couple of those those eco regions. These ducks are steadily uh, increasing out there when conditions are right, and conditions were good this year. And so, when we we talk about these conversations about um, intensive 
uh, hunting and human disturbance in areas like the Gulf Coast. It makes real sense. Uh, a very, very short flight for some of these birds to go find these safe havens out there and be able to survive and have, you know, uh, excellent resources. You know, there's not a lot of, you know, agriculture in that landscape. Uh, there's a few areas where there's peanuts, uh, but for the most part, it's just uh, these birds are making a living in the water, which they, they swim, eating seeds and bugs. And, uh, and they're not in huge concentrations. You know, this is the exact same conversation I'll have with you about things that are going on, like in the rolling plains and the oaks and prairies. But, you know, you don't have to be in huge concentrations. And that's another thing that ducks really like, especially ducks that are progressing into their their late winter uh, habits of pairing and courtship. So, um, no, when, when that landscape gets wet, uh, we expect to see birds out there. And, you know, there's been years where that, that landscape has been top two or three uh, statewide number of ducks that are out there. So it's a really neat, unique little place that, that birds, just another example of birds uh, changing their behaviors and distribution um, in response to landscape changes as well as, as uh, you know, human disturbance. So. I'm also a bit surprised here at the shoveler numbers there. They were they were down 72%, but even with that, uh, the number statewide estimate was 32,000. So that would mean your um, your number – I don't know what the average is there. I'd have to look that up, but uh, that's a surprisingly small number. And I guess the upshot is uh, you don't have to worry about – with that small of a shoveler number, you don't have to worry about our chief scientist, Tom Mormon, paying a visit to your state to duck hunt because you, we all know that's his favorite species. There you go. Yeah, I know a handful of people like that. My former boss was that way too, Mr. Marsh. So, uh, the reality is, um, again, uh, that pro- that number is probably estimated quite low into uh, in what was reality out there. But some ducks are just a little bit easier to detect. Um, and uh, yeah, it was low. Uh, it's probably a, a, a good sign of what was on the landscape, but that doesn't mean there wasn't more out there um, for sure. So, um, And that is a very, very important duck. Uh, also, it's an early migrator, so you got to kind of realize when they're flying. Uh, a lot of those birds, you know, their peak migration, peak abundance is much earlier in the year uh, than you know, middle of January. Um, so um, it's just uh, that bird is so important to the state of Texas uh, anymore, and and hunters are very uh, welcoming to to harvest that bird, and and that's a good thing because shovelers on a continental scale are doing quite well. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I actually looked pulled up the other file here, and the long term average for that species across your state is uh, up around 140,000. And and what you noted there, increasing numbers in recent years, is is borne out here in this uh, in in what I'm seeing here. So yeah. Just uh, probably a couple of years there where you've, um, yeah, just the, the, the nature of, of what happens with a survey sometime. So, uh, Kevin, any other notable things? Actually, that we do want to talk about, uh, I know we want to talk about geese because you did, uh, the small Canada's were particularly noteworthy on this survey, but anything else on the duck front that you wanted to cover? Um, no, I'll probably talk more about it in a later uh, conversation, but yeah, um, the, the Oaks and Prairie estimate uh, was um, kind of scarily low. I'm not exactly sure why that number was so low this year, um, but uh, that was one of the lower numbers we've had out there in quite some time. So we'll be keeping our eyes on that one for sure. So let's talk a bit about geese. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to get into the historical trend that we're seeing with geese because we we have a lot to talk about there. But just for this year's results, uh, it seemed that you. Uh, the, the number of, of Canada geese, small Canadas that you counted, was uh, was un, unusual. Is that fair to say? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, for the longest time, small Canada geese, um, what we used to call short grass prairie Canada geese, then we changed them to small Canadas, and now apparently officially are cackling geese. Um, so things changed by uh, very quickly. Um, but they're, they were one of the few goose species in North America that are actually declining for a while, and uh, that seems to have taken a turn for the better in the last decade. Um, and when you, when you start talking about geese, one of the really interesting things to note is uh, we don't count geese in the Arctic, you know, on the breeding grounds uh, like we do ducks. And so when we're looking at goose abundances, um, one of the main ways in which we, we do that is with this winter survey. And so it's a very important survey for a number of different geese, goose species. And, and uh, for small Canada's, um, it's an interesting story in, in the state of Texas. You know, historically, small Canada's were a very big part of the population of geese that wintered on the Texas coast. Um, if you look at the Texas coastal goose data, um, we haven't detected a Canada goose on the Texas coast in a survey for years. Essentially, our survey can't detect them. We know there's a few out there, but they're very few. They're kind of become our unicorn on the Texas coast. And a very, a very uh, extremely different story is going on in the high plains. Um, and we did count, uh, again, this is a, probably a, a strong sign of habitat conditions, but we did have a, uh, our second highest, uh, just a couple thousand geese short of being the highest uh, Canada goose estimate ever. Um, and, you know, for the high plains alone, it was uh, 350,000 small Canada geese. Um, and what's interesting about those geese is they've become very traditional to that landscape because they've adapted as well. So this year, yes, we had a lot of abundant wetland basins holding water, and we found geese using those uh, you know, basins throughout the countryside. But any given year, when they're wet or froze or dry or frozen, uh, these birds have adapted to urban environments. Uh, these are little bitty, tiny, uh, arctic nesting, dodging polar bears and grizzly bears half the year to being just as happy sitting inside the sea limits of Lubbock or Amarillo uh, and letting people walk by within 10 feet of them. Um, you know, during the daytime. Uh, and so there's all these abundant small city parks, ponds, lakes, inside city limits. Uh, even small cities have, you know, either a small city park with a lake in it and or uh, an affluent treatment pond. I call them square ponds. You know, they're, real, they're obvious. They're real obvious on the landscape. But these geese have realized, one, there's protection there for roosting. They can go in there at night. Also, there's thermo, uh, you know, temperature regulation inside the city limits so those ponds freeze later and they actually have no problem going inside the city limits and using that as the roof site they still make two field feeding flights a day so they'll sit around the grass around the ponds in the city limits and, and nibble at grass and pick at it but uh, each morning and each evening they all get up and they go out to a uh, you know a winter wheat field a milo field or a cornfield and, and feed twice a day and so um, they're still very much wild bird but it's kind of it's kind of a drought proof that landscape for geese. You know, historically they follow the same trend as the ducks. Uh, but when they, since they kind of made this shift, um, it's uh, really drought proofed it. Um, the biggest extreme we ever saw was a very, very dry year, very cold year. Um, there's a lot of connectivity from our small Canada geese and say the front range of Colorado and Wyoming, um, you know, Denver and those type of areas. So it was a very, very cold year. Um, we had an abnormal amount of geese. Uh, it was dry. The only water available in the landscape was uh, either urban water or industry water, like uh, packing plants or uh, livestock operations. And 
inside the city limits of Amarillo, just Amarillo, we counted 190,000 Canada geese. Inside the city limits of Lovett, we counted 240,000 Canada geese. Uh, these are enormous concentrations uh, of birds that are that have turned urban. This was one of those years we had a very, very high count, but they were out on the landscape mostly. There were still birds inside the city limits, but it was nowhere near like that. And so they were out on the landscape, uh, you know, sampling, uh, you know, all the, the ag, agribusiness that's out there. And uh, we're quite happy this year. Here's a little nugget that, that uh, highlights what's happening with geese in the state of Texas. For this year, and we'll talk about this in our next discussion, uh, the number of Canada geese statewide, and for Canada geese, we're including the large Canadas, we're including the small Canadas, which as you mentioned are the cackling, that total number was 517,000. The total number of snow, blue, you know, the light geese, uh, uh, white uh, white and, and blue phase of, of light geese was only 412,000. So you had more Canada geese, can- Canadas and cacklers combined than, than snow geese. And anyone familiar with the history of goose hunting in Texas, that ought to be a shocker to you. So, um, uh, Or if you're familiar with what's going on, it may not be a shocker to you. But if your perspective is one of the history of snow goose hunting on the Texas coast, then that, that probably would surprise you. Yeah, it's definitely uh, a surprise and a shock. And it's in, uh, something we're uber aware of. Uh, but I believe it's, it's a scenario that we need to get used to, uh, sadly. Back to those cackling geese very briefly. Given their affinity for those urban areas, have you seen any of them stick around and become resident thus far? Do you Are you kind of looking for that? Do you expect that? Well, our resident population statewide is growing. And as you may or may not know, we do offer a, a uh, in our eastern tier, our east zone goose uh, hunting area, a early Canada goose season because um, we have this growing resident population. But the thing in the high plains is, yes, there's, there's resident Canada geese in those urban areas, but they're two different subspecies. Uh, we don't see the little geese sticking around. If you see a little goose in the summer, you know, with a little bitty cute bill and a little bitty, you know, skinny neck, short neck, um, it's wounded or sick. Uh, we don't see those populations sticking around. We do have a pretty rapidly growing uh, population of large Canada geese, large race Canada geese, um, in all of our urban areas um, nowadays, I'm, I'm, there's even quite a few reports now in Harris County and Houston, uh, in that part of the world. But Dallas, you know, Wichita Falls, Amarillo, Lubbock, you, know, you name it, they all have a growing concentration of, of, of resident candidates. Kevin, what have you heard? This will be the last question, then we'll kind of wrap this one up. What did you hear throughout the season with respect to hunter success? And I know across the state, as large as Texas, it's, it's difficult to get an accurate gauge on that. But the number of times that your phone rings as the waterfowl program leader probably serves as a bit of a barometer for how things are going. So can you speak to that a bit? Yeah. So, um, you know, historically that's exactly how we kind of gauge things in regard to, to, uh, successes, you know, just inter- interaction with hunters and people calling. Uh, but the reality nowadays, there's so many more tools out there. Um, you know, social media is a pretty interesting uh, tool for, Someone like myself, I can I can keep track of a lot of things going on out there, and and then obviously there's still plenty of conversations with people, and and uh, literally overall, I guess the best way for me to describe it, it was uh, a better than average year, um, from what I heard and from what I've seen. Um, some, you know, again, giant state, incredibly different conditions from end to end, wall to wall. We're talking public duck hunters, we're talking private land duck hunters, we're talking about high and you know expensive leases, we're talking bays. We're talking people that hunt the Pecos River in far west Texas in the desert 
And so it's very difficult to kind of tie all that in a single package. Uh, but I, heard, I didn't hear a lot of complaints. Um, I, I heard a lot more people saying it was um, as good as uh, a great season or even, even quite a few people saying it was one of the best seasons they've had. So um, I guess that's just a, a simplified version of it. Without question, there's people out there that uh, would disagree with me. Uh, but that's just the, you know, the, the nature of a big state and the places in which people have access to hunt. That's going to be the case even in a small state. It's going to be a case on the on a, on a, a scale as small as the WMA. There's some places will be good, some won't. Sometimes we can explain it, sometimes we can't. Uh, sometimes it's because uh, a person is a better hunter. Sometimes it's just that the ducks don't want to be in that in that particular location. But uh, but anyway, I, I we have gone way longer than I anticipated we would on this. But Texas is a big state. There's a lot of interesting things happening there with with waterfowl numbers, and we wanted to make sure we cover those. And we thank you, Kevin, for joining us and sharing the results of this survey. Before we close out, any any final comments from you? I just want to make sure we've covered what we needed to on this. No, I think that does it. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks for joining, Kevin. Thank you. Special thanks to our guest on today's show, Kevin Cry, Waterfowl Program Leader with Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. A good friend of mine, a colleague I worked with for a long time and has a lot of great information to share on what we're seeing with respect to waterfowl trends, waterfowl numbers um, across the entire state of Texas. So appreciate the time that he he, uh, gave to us today. As always, we thank our producer, Clayton Baird. Our local nickname for him here is the Electron Warrior for all the work that he does editing the podcast and getting them out to you, our listeners. And as always, our listeners, we thank you for spending your time with us and we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.